I was at the gym. I was on the treadmill running when the screen changed and there was a newsman sitting at his desk and behind him in the Chiron, it said Kobe Bryant and a picture of him and it said in 1978 to 2020. Five-time NBA champion for the Los Angeles Lakers was killed when a helicopter crashed and caught fire in Southern California. And my first reaction was, what? Wait, 2020? What? No, that's, that's what you... That's 2020s now. What does that mean? What is that? That's what I thought. What does that mean? What does this mean? When I saw the headline, I mean, it just certainly hits you like a ton of bricks. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want, I mean, I, I received text messages from people and I didn't respond to any of them because I didn't want to acknowledge that Kobe was dead. And I just never forget when it was confirmed that his daughter Gigi was on the helicopter just to hear a, a woman just start to scream and wail. And that for me, that was when it was just, it was like, how can this get worse? And then, and then it's like, oh my God, it's getting worse. It's getting worse. As far as the where were you moments here in LA, this is the biggest, it's going to be a day that everyone will remember you know, unfortunately. Welcome to the Athletic Podcast Network. I'm Mike Smeltz. On this special episode, we're looking back at the 24-hour period from Saturday night to Sunday night surrounding the Sunday morning helicopter crash in Calabasas that took the lives of nine people, Kobe and Gigi Bryant, John Kerry and Alyssa Altabelli, Christina Mauser, Arya Zabayan, and Peyton and Sarah Chester. A team of writers here at The Athletic will help tell the story of those 24 hours. From Los Angeles to Philadelphia, Atlanta, New York City, and across the NBA. Heading into the weekend, Los Angeles sports fans had Kobe on their mind. Current Lakers star LeBron James was heading into Kobe's hometown of Philadelphia to play the 76ers, a game where LeBron would pass Kobe as the NBA's third all-time leading scorer. The weekend, though, became something much different. The Athletics' Michael Lee was in Philly Saturday night for the Lakers-Sixers game. There was a lot of excitement in the arena. It, it sort of felt like a playoff game coming in. Um, you know, fans were already camped out because the game started at 8.30, so people had nothing else to do on a Saturday. They were just hanging out there from 6 until just out in the parking lot. People were anticipating a fun night. You know, the Lakers were in town. LeBron was in town. You just knew it was going to be an event. There was a lot of emotion, and they were fired up. They were ready to see their Sixers win and to see LeBron make history, and they got their wish. LeBron did make the history fans in attendance were hoping he'd make. An easy layup in the third quarter moved LeBron to third all-time on the NBA scoring list, passing Kobe. Of course, the focus after the game, a Lakers loss, was still LeBron's latest achievement. LeBron, once we walked in the locker room, he was ready to go. He was ready to talk. I think at the moment he was already FaceTiming or communicating with Chris Paul, you know, his good buddy, banana boat brother. <laughs> you could tell that LeBron was excited. He had, you know, passed a guy who, not just somebody he admired and looked up to as a player who straight to high school to the NBA type of inspiration, but somebody who he had befriended, you know, throughout his career. They never they never really developed the kind of rivalry that I think people have wanted for them. 2009, when the Cavaliers lost in the conference finals to the Orlando Magic. That was probably the best chance. That was when Nike had the puppets going. <laughs> LeBron was just sharing all these great stories about how, you know, in 2002, when the All-Star game was in Philadelphia, he had actually played a game in New Jersey against Oak Hill Academy, I believe against Carmelo Anthony that night. Me and Maverick drove to the Intercontinental downtown Philadelphia, and he gave me a pair of his shoes, which I ended up wearing um, that following night. It was the red, white, and blue Kobe's. I was a 15 and he was a 14 and I wore him anyways. I'm happy to just to be in a, any conversation with Kobe being Brian. 
one of the all-time greatest basketball players to ever play, one of the all-time greatest Lakers. The man got two jerseys hanging up in Staples Center. It's just, it's just crazy. It was just he, you could just see that there was a lot of euphoria. Great to see him because you know he's a 35-year-old vet, 17 years in the league, and he's talking like a 15-year-old who just met his idol. And it was just it was a genuine thing. And you could tell that he was ready to to give Kobe his praise. And it just I think that's what made the next uh, 24 hours so difficult. That night, Kobe sent out a tweet acknowledging LeBron's achievement, telling him to keep going. A small public gesture, no extra words needed. Because surely this wouldn't be the last time LeBron reached a new milestone in his career, and there would be more chances for Kobe to heap praise on LeBron. The joy and achievement on Saturday night turned into the complete shock and horror of Sunday morning. I was driving to my in-laws. I see Brett Dawson is calling me, and I'm thinking, first of all, why is he calling me on a Sunday? (laughs) You know. Joe Lago was the managing editor for The Athletic Los Angeles. Normally, unless we have a pressing assignment, writers typically aren't calling me. Immediately, my thoughts go to something pressing or bad has happened. Actually, something pressing has happened. It hasn't entered my mind that something tragic or awful has happened. Pick up the call, and first first words out of his mouth are, Have you heard about Kobe? We're coming on the air with breaking news, very sad news to tell the sports world. The L.A. Times is reporting that retired Los Angeles Lakers basketball star Kobe Bryant has been killed in a helicopter crash. It happened this morning. For me, the first indication that this might be true, because they're now talking about it on the radio. All the misinformation, like it's like I'm in the car for another 25 minutes. I've been hearing misinformation, the lack of details. Everyone's trying to confirm the story. And I'm looking at my wife like, I can't, we just can't believe it. We're all disbelief and utter shock. The disbelief that 41-year-old Kobe Bryant was dead was born out of the near impossibility that someone who exhibited such vitality like Kobe could be gone so soon, says The Athletic's Washington, D.C. editor-in-chief David Aldridge, who covered Kobe from when Kobe was a 17-year-old entering the NBA. The news was relayed to David via a soundless television while he ran on the treadmill. I was watching CBS and there was there was a newsman sitting at his desk and behind him in the Chiron, it said Kobe Bryant and a picture of him. And it said in 1978 to 2020. And my first reaction was, what? Wait, 2020? What? No, that's that's what you that's 2020 is now. What does that mean? What is that? That's what I thought. What does that mean? What does this mean? Because I could not obviously process in my mind that he could have died. You're literally like, wait a minute, what, is, what does that mean? And then they started saying, you know, what had happened. And um, I went to the locker room and I, I just, I was numb. And I sat there in the locker room on the bench <laughs> and I just started sobbing. I started sobbing and I'd sob, it, was, it had to be 10, 15 minutes. I just couldn't stop. It wasn't crying. It was sobbing. You know, I just seen him. We talked about our kids. The Athletics' Bill Orem has covered the Lakers since 2013. The Philly game was obviously really uh, significant because LeBron was on the cusp of passing Kobe Bryant on the all-time scoring list. And that's a, you know, an important story in the NBA and to the Lakers. I had 10 days earlier chased down Kobe at an event where he was announcing a partnership between Body Armor and Major League Soccer. So I'd just seen the dude. The Athletics LA columnist Molly Knight went out to the scene of the crash in Calabasas, where she found people just standing, staring into the hills 
out of a need to see the wreckage for themselves, to believe what they had heard was actually true. Two hours later, the, the, the wreckage was visible up in the hills and it was still smoldering. I mean, that was, you know, an image I'll never forget. Just the image of Laker fans and people who lived there who were just came out of their houses wondering what's going on. And people were sort of mostly stunned and not really saying a whole lot. Nobody really knew where they were walking to or where they were going or what they were trying to do. In downtown L.A., outside Staples Center at L.A. Live, Lakers fans began to congregate. The Athletics' Brett Dawson. When I got to L.A. Live, there are all these screens all over L.A. Live. All those screens, all these big screens, just had a black and white photo of Kobe. I think it said in loving memory, and it had the, the years of his birth and death. There were so many people looking at those screens. In those first minutes, maybe the first 45 minutes to an hour that I was there, it was a lot of people just kind of looking up there. They were quietly sort of staring at it. Some people kind of wandered around. It was very quiet at, at, at the start, as quiet as something can be. For a few hours on Sunday afternoon, all that was known was that Kobe was among those killed in the crash. Inaccurate reports filled the internet. How many people and who else might have been on that helicopter? It wasn't until later when it became clear who was sitting with Kobe. I just will never forget when the when it was confirmed that his daughter Gigi was on the on the helicopter just to hear a, a woman just start to just start to scream and wail and that for me that was like when it was just it was like how can this get worse and then and then it was like oh my god it's getting worse it's getting worse and then um and then from there they, the sheriffs and said they were going to have a press briefing the real moment of just oh my god was when um L.A. County Sheriff Alex Villanueva came out and said that We have a manifest that indicates that there was nine people on board the aircraft. The pilot plus eight individuals. Uh, there was Previously, TMZ or whoever else had said that it was five. So then to come to realize, oh, my God, oh, my God, you know, this is just getting worse and worse. And, and um, to find out that there were more children. I mean, it was just a it was it was really tough. We saw some reporters, some colleagues of mine who had relationships with with Bryant and Bryant's family, you know, they they'd be doing um, hits on television and perfectly composed, holding it together, doing their jobs, provi- you know, providing information to the public. And then and then when, the, you know, camera turned off, they would they would just just, just turn and sob. And, you know, and I just called my editor and said, uh, I'm going to write an obituary for Gigi. I just want to write something straight up friends or family members because it's just it's just too awful you know I just want to honor her I saw a little bit of myself in Gigi I thought you know I played basketball I was a tomboy I was I remember being 13 that's when I started really getting into it I just didn't want her to be forgotten over the course of the next couple hours Staples or LA Live got really active I mean it became a really big event a lot of people showed up much more festive event a lot of Kobe chants a lot of MVP chants And yet also, you know, I saw a woman kind of wander through that crowd. Just she had uh, a Kobe Bryant jersey over a hoodie and she had the hood up and tears were just streaming down her face. And she was walking around so aimlessly. I never got to talk to her, but she looked like she needed somewhere quiet, like some moment to kind of be to herself. And she couldn't find it in all that mass of people. Um, And that that's like an image from that day that's always going to stand out to me. The impromptu mass memorial to Kobe that built up over time at L.A. Live ran directly into the pre-scheduled event of the day, the Grammys, that was to be held inside Staples Center. Musicians and music lovers mixed in with mourners of Kobe. As people started to arrive for the Grammys, uh, you got this weird scene. It was already such a scene. There were so many people out, so many of them in Kobe Bryant jerseys and shirts. 
And then all of a sudden there are these guys in tuxes and fitted suits and these women in like long, flowing, colorful gowns. And some of them came over to the thing because like, one, it was this huge, just a giant gathering of people. So there was curiosity. But two, some of them also wanted the same thing. They wanted to just sort of be around the Kobe Bryant scene. I saw people from the Grammys taking selfies and taking pictures of the whole scene. Um, and some of them who looked very stunned by the whole thing. And one of the things about the day in all the sort of surreality of it, you realize the wide range of people who felt impacted by it. Within that day, those who knew Kobe really knew him and his family in the inner circle began to talk about the person they knew. So I just cold called Jerry. The athletic Sam Amick talking about Jerry, Jerry West, the Lakers legend responsible for bringing Kobe to L.A. and the Lakers. I mean, that's a phone call, a conversation and an interview like I'll never forget. It's uh, it's extremely heavy. In the interview with Sam, West revealed something he never got a chance to tell Kobe himself that he considered himself to be a surrogate father to Kobe. For him to say anything about Kobe that he's never said before is quite a feat. He's talked about this guy for a very long time. He was the man who pulled off the trade with Charlotte for him when Kobe was 17 years old. As he told the story, uh, he was the guy whose son Ryan used to drive around L.A. on the 405 with Kobe, kind of showing him the ropes. This kid from Philly getting used to L.A. and Ryan and the West family was from here. Um, Dinners at the West house. He was a kid. And so the surrogate father part, I think the sensitivity with that comment is that one of the areas of Kobe's life that everybody in the media always had a tricky time talking about. Now, certainly Vail, Colorado and the situation out there was number one on that list. But, you know, to a lesser degree, his relationship with his parents was a tricky one because as he got older, he, it was clear he was estranged from his parents. Um, I don't know specifically where they ended up relationship wise near his end, but he did address it. Not a couple of years before he passed, he did an interview with Ramona Shelburne at ESPN where he talked about what led them to kind of have a, a distance between them. And so to hear Jerry say the surrogate father comment, stuck out to me quite a bit because it was real. And I, you just kind of got the sense that he might not have shared that previously because, you know, I'm sure that he was trying to show respect specifically to, you know, Joe Jellybean Bryant, you know, Kobe's dad and somebody who uh, Jerry at different times had a relationship with. During the afternoon when there were still so few details about the crash, Bill Orm was reaching out to current and former Lakers employees, coaches, trainers, public relations staffers. What have you heard? And, and I'm sorry, there was kind of an uncomfortable point really early on where you had to, where, you know, you know, I was writing the news story. So I did have to very gingerly, I hope gingerly, I hope people understand the task at hand. But then once it was confirmed and, you know, that change certainly changed the, the tenor of my correspondence with people, which was just, how are you? I'm so sorry. If anybody wanted to talk, I was there. In Costa Mesa, California, on a beautifully manicured ball field with palm trees swaying behind the outfield fence. Obviously, it was a very sad, somber scene. I mean, you see, first thing you see is the flowers and the remembrances that have already been left near home plate. The Athletics Angels reporter Fabian Ardaya says current and former baseball players from Orange Coast College gathered in stunned silence. And then you sort of get to realize, like, this was obviously the place to meet. Nate Johnson, the guy 
who's going to be taking over the program now, said this is the house that Alta built. Alto, OCC head baseball coach John Altabelli, who along with his wife Carrie and their youngest daughter Alyssa were on the helicopter with Kobe and his daughter Gigi because Gigi and Alyssa played on the same basketball team and Kobe and John became friends through their daughter's connection. John was preparing for his 28th season at OCC to lead a program that he essentially built, one that so many former players point to as the place where their life changed. The way that when you show up to that field, everyone from his first team to his last team were telling their own stories, but they're all different versions of the same story. The common thread I found is just, for all these guys, it was the second chance. I mean, whether you're transferring in from a Division One program and trying to bounce back and get a chance somewhere else, or if you're just trying to walk on because you can't really get another shot, I mean, that's what junior college baseball is all about, and you don't do it for three decades like John Altabelli did without leaving a lasting impact on a lot of people. Both Alyssa and Lexi, his oldest daughter, they were both bat girls for the team. I mean, J.J. Altabelli didn't play for the program, but baseball was part of his blood. He's currently a scout for the Boston Red Sox. His family is the program. Fabian was among several reporters who had come to OCC on that Sunday to learn more about John. And at most colleges with sports programs like OCC, reporters go to the school's SID, Sports Information Director, the lead public relations point person, to learn more about the program. At OCC, the SID is John's brother, Tony. I mean, I was talking to him on the field, and he sort of basically, as he was walking off, he said, all right, I, I guess I have to go write this story on my brother dying. And it, just that that's when it really hits you, just sort of, how crazy this all is and how tough a day this must have been for him because he you show up and he's just doing his job he's sort of directing the news coverage he's sort of helping making sure the media members have the right information handling probably one of the toughest days of his life by far and he's working his way through it and then all of a sudden he takes this moment where he breathes and he sort of you could see in his eyes like him it hitting him a bit just how devastating obviously sunday was for him goes to work. Bryant the drive. Oh! Kobe Bryant on a rock attack! For most of the current generation of NBA players, Kobe was their childhood idol. The one so many players modeled not just their play after, but their practice habits and ambitions. And with eight games on the NBA schedule on that Sunday, would the NBA ask those same players to perform just hours after hearing their hero was gone? The Athletics Brooklyn Nets reporter Alex Schiffer says players ahead of the Nets-Knicks game that day were asking the same question. I remember Spencer Dinwiddie walked through with his hood up and he stopped to ask Wilson Chandler, are we still playing? And Wilson kind of gave him a look like, I, I guess so. I never did see Kyrie that day. There were some reports that games had been canceled that day. Obviously now that turned out to be incorrect report. The Athletics Atlanta Hawks reporter Chris Kirshner showed up earlier than usual for the Hawks-Wizards game, set to tip off just about five hours after Kobe's helicopter crash in Calabasas. I immediately ran into the PR director for the Hawks, and I was like, is this game going to be played? And he said, absolutely. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm out on the court, sitting courtside. You know, normally Vince Carter is the, the one who warms up the earliest for the Hawks. And he wasn't out there. None of the Wizards were out there. Still like 90-ish minutes before the game. No Hawks are out on the court. I think I didn't know exactly what, what was going on in the locker room. That departure from normalcy that Kirshner describes in Atlanta was persistent throughout the league. In the Houston Rockets-Denver Nuggets game, several Rockets, including center Tyson Chandler, 
had tears streaming down their face as they stood during a pregame tribute to Kobe. In San Antonio, Raptors and Spurs players collaborated for their own tribute, both running out the 24-second shot clock at the start of the game to honor Kobe, who wore the number 24, something teams in other games copied as well. In Atlanta, Hawks star guard Trey Young had his own personal tribute. Young was not wearing his normal number 11 jersey, but number 8 for Kobe. You know, one thing I'll never forget, you know, Trey, during warm-ups, his mother was just sitting, you know, watching warm-ups. Trey stops, and his mother comes out, and, you know, they hug for, like, 30 seconds, and you can see that Trey is um, crying in his mother's arms. I mean, that's something that it's tough to watch because, you know, you, you see these guys pretty much every single day. You don't really get to see emotions like that where it's super heartfelt player crying in, in his mother's arms and, you know, essentially telling him or at least symbolizing that everything is going to be okay at the end of the day. It's, it's tough. It's something that Kobe was one of Trey's favorite players. And not only that, but Kobe's daughter, Gianna, Trey was her favorite player. So just the emotion of it all, it, it was, it's tough. And, and it's something that no matter what I do for the rest of my life, um, you know, it's, it's going to be hard to forget that moment. Up in New York at Madison Square Garden, another star point guard was struggling to cope with Kobe's death. During Kenny Atkinson's pregame conference, he says one of our players was extremely close to Kobe. My thoughts and prayers were out to him. We all knew that was Kyrie. He wouldn't give us the name. And then the Nets PR tweeted shortly after Kyrie won't play today for personal reasons. Kyrie describes his relationship with Kobe as teacher and student, and that it was deeper than basketball. The Athletics' Joe Varden covered Kyrie for years in Cleveland and saw at that time how close Kobe and Kyrie had become. You know, some players, they lose a family member, whether it's a parent or a sibling. Some of them need the day to regroup. For Kyrie, that was the kind of relationship that he felt he he had with Kobe. I mean, you're talking about a player that Kyrie idolized, a person that he idolized growing up, but became that mentor-mentee relationship to the point where Kyrie would call or seek out Kobe for advice and would get it and then would implement it in his own life to the point where the Cavs won the 2016 finals and they were celebrating in the locker room and Kyrie called Kobe on FaceTime from the locker room. So this is a a giant who disappeared from Kyrie's life and then a couple hours later he was asked to go to work. The Nets without Kyrie lost to the Knicks in a game where it was clear some of the players did not want to be there. Afterwards in the locker room, Nets guard Spencer Dinwiddie, who grew up in L.A. idolizing Kobe, broke down while talking about how during a game against the Hawks this season, a game Kobe attended with his daughter Gigi, Kobe and Spencer had a conversation. You know, he felt like this was the first time he was, you know, looking at me as like like the basketball player, Spencer, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, briefly told you guys how much he meant to, you know what I'm saying, all the people from, uh, you know, where I'm from. And, you know, for him to tell me that, you know, in, in his book, I'm an all-star and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like that, uh, I talked about the popularity contest before. And, like, you know, you don't win things like that, you know, when, you, when you're when you me. So for him to say that, like, it, I didn't need to be selected, you know what I mean, anymore. Like, I was an all-star, you feel me? Like, it's not just like my family, you know, it was the guy. The Athletics' Alex Schiffer. After he's finished talking, there was probably about 20 to 30 seconds of silence where no one said anything and they still had the recorders. Just nobody could really speak. And uh, I looked up 
a few reporters were actually tearing up from what he said. I've never seen a, a quote elicit a response like that. I've never seen it. It was almost like paralysis where just nobody could move or speak for 30 seconds. It, it'll stick with me an extremely long time. The impact of what happened on January 24th, 2020 can never truly be quantified because that is how large of an impact Kobe had made in his life. For the people that knew Kobe and Gigi, John, Carrie, and Alyssa, Christina, Ara, Peyton, and Sarah, they'll carry an emotional scar that can never be healed. When talking to Michael Lee, he touched on a feeling that many felt after the helicopter crash in Calabasas, a reminder that nothing in life should be taken for granted. You know, I want to cry, and I think there's been moments where tears sort of welled up in my eyes, but I haven't really allowed myself to do it. But it's hard just to see it and, and to, to, to read stories about, you know, what happened that day or, to, you know, hear things that Kobe may have said in the past about his daughter. And it just sort of slaps you in the face that life is this gift, right? But somehow he managed to share that gift with the world. I think that's what it sort of led me to think about, you know, how can I share my gifts with the world and inspire it, you know, it doesn't have to be on that level. It doesn't have to be, you know, that, that level of fame or that level of global impact and, and, uh, and, and touch and reach. But maybe I can inspire my son. We only are here for so long, and we only have such a short opportunity to affect people. Thank you for listening. I'm Mike Smeltz for the Athletic Podcast Network.